0: Well, good morning. Go ahead and stay standing. Grab your Bibles. Open them up to the first letter of Peter to chapter 4. If you were expecting Doug this morning, that's okay. So were we. So this is all kind of spur of the moment, and that's how things happen. Pray for Pastor Doug as he is not feeling well, and uh, sometimes pitch hitters get called in to, uh, to send this home. So. We'll see what happens this morning, but we are excited. First Peter chapter four. We're going to dive in, and I'm going to read all all 19 verses. So, um, if you're ready to sit down, you're going to have to wait just a minute longer, and then we'll get going. But here we go. First Peter chapter four, verse one. He says, "Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. You may be seated. I don't really know if there's much to add to it. Peter does a pretty good job there just kind of running through some things, but we're going to see if we can't dissect some of it. So one of my favorite movies from childhood, and if I'm honest with myself and if I'm honest with you guys, it probably still is one of my favorite movies, is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, back from the the early 90s there. The cast was great, the script was fun and full of action, and like many older movies, there were applicable lessons that could be learned through the story arc. One of the scenes that has always stuck with me happens toward the beginning of the movie. In this scene, Robin of Locksley, played by Kevin Costner, and then Hazim, the great one, played by Morgan Freeman, have just fled from some of the Sheriff Nottingham's men. They fled into the cursed Sherwood Forest, and they were hoping to disappear within the trees of the forest. They came to a large river, and as they were looking for uh, for a way to cross that river, they encountered a a large man by the name of John Little and his band of outlaws. John Little informed Robin that there was a tax for crossing the river, and when Robin refused to pay, the two men began to fight. If you remember the movie, hopefully the scene is kind of resonating with you. If you don't remember the movie, you'll want to go back and watch it at some point. But for much of this fight, It seemed like the larger, John, was going to win, and he was going to take Robin's heirloom that was around his neck. It was a cross. And in fact, at the climax of their fight, this is exactly what happened. John sends Robin into the water, and when Robin resurfaces, he notices that the cross is missing from around his neck. And through a few more back and forths and some wise shenanigans on Robin's part, he ends up getting the upper hand. The fight concludes with Robin repeatedly dunking John's entire body into the water and he's saying the simple question. He says, do you yield? Do you yield? Do you yield? And he keeps dunking him. So John Little finally says he yields and Robin then instructs him to put his feet down and to stand up. See, it turns out that that final encounter happened in about two feet of water and it was a piece of information that would have changed the outcome if John had known it. But John Little was in a place of suffering. He was in a place of uncertainty. He found himself in a dire situation and he was only focused on that immediate circumstance. He saw no way out of that circumstance. And finally, he yielded to what he thought was his adversary. He submitted. He stopped trying to save himself and he allowed Robin to help him. In doing this, he would soon learn that who he thought was his adversary was actually his friend. He was someone he could follow, and he was someone that he willingly would yield to. As we break down 1 Peter 4, we must ask ourselves this same question, do I yield? Peter is going to lay down some very hard truths regarding suffering and our Christian life, but he is laying these truths down in the most encouraging and hopeful way as possible. 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement. At the end of the letter, this is actually what Peter writes. In verse, or chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. There are two central themes that run through this entire letter. Suffering and glory. The idea being that as Christ suffered and his suffering ultimately brought him to his glory. Glory. So as we suffer with Christ, one day our suffering will also be transformed to his glory. While this is ultimately a future event, as we go through this chapter, we will see that there are glorious moments for us uh, in the present as well. So by the time of writing of this letter, Peter has come a long way. We know we can think back to Peter and his life and the, the arc of his own story, But he is often referred to as the Apostle of Hope. We know that John is the Apostle of Love and all of them kind of get these these subtitles sometimes added to their names. Now, Pastor Ryan and Josh, they both like to tease me. They say that I am not a hope generator. Whenever I'm preaching, I'm usually not preaching a message of hope, they say. I don't know if I would fully agree with that. Hopefully you guys get a little bit of hope out of some of the things that I say. But I figure by teaching out of Peter's letter this morning, teaching out of the Apostle of Hope's words, you'll at least come away with some hope, even if I myself am not a hope generator. So we'll see what happens. But we see his hope throughout his writings. And as Peter guides us through different issues, our attitude is ultimately what we must be willing to yield. So look again in verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the the flesh of the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Here, Peter is encouraging his audience to have a Christ-like attitude. This is an attitude of commitment through suffering, as well as a firm attitude towards sin. Peter opens up this chapter with the term, therefore, and this is referring back to chapter three. Specifically, it's talking about verse 18, where Peter is talking about Christ's endurance through his own unjust sufferings, sufferings that he did not deserve, yet he was resolved to overcome. Look at the phrase, since Christ suffered for us. Peter is basically saying that Jesus has done something very significant for us. The least we can do is be like-minded with him as we navigate the rest of our days. Jesus had suffered because of sin. There was no other way around that, but it wasn't his sin. We need to remember that. Peter then says, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Peter is exhorting believers to equip themselves with the same attitude, and that's the the phrase, the same mind, of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. Arming ourselves is a military mindset. As we read this, our mind should hopefully go to Ephesians 6, where Paul is discussing the armor of God. Equipping or arming is an intentional process, it involves care and attention to detail, or else it becomes useless. Warren Wiersbe says that our attitudes are weapons and weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. We need to treat our attitude as it is a weapon in our hands for the glory of God. So I ask you a couple questions here at the beginning. Are you feeling defeated today? And then the next question would be, how is your attitude Reflect on those as we continue to go through. Hebrews 4.12 is a classic verse that is focused on the power of God's word, but it's actually linked to this verse also. So Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Greek word that Peter uses in uh, our text where he says same mind is the same Greek word used in Hebrews 4 here for the word thoughts. The idea being that when we equip ourselves with the same mind, thoughts, or attitude as Christ, then we have an unwavering resolve to do God's will. Nothing will sway us as nothing would sway Christ. So this is the first thing that we must yield. Our attitude toward being fully committed to doing God's will. So I'll ask again, how is your attitude this morning? The rest of verses 1 through 3 will then show us that we also need to yield our attitude toward sin and our time, especially as our time relates to sin. So again, in verse 2, he says that we no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Paul says it this way 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As believers, we are no longer under the bondage of sin. The question then becomes, how much time are we going to waste dealing with sin? Sadly, many Christians in their heart of hearts think that they have not spent enough time doing the will of the ungodly. They want to experience more of the world before they make a full commitment to godliness. Peter is saying that we have wasted enough of our time prior to being a Christian that now that we are believers and followers of Christ, our time should be fully devoted to doing the will of God. We shouldn't be getting caught up in the flesh. We have been freed from the bondage of sin, so we shouldn't be running back to our shackles. We've been free from the bondage of sin, so we shouldn't be running back to those Shackles. Ephesians 5, 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Stop being double-minded. Stop remembering the pleasure associated with sin and forgetting the bondage of your sin. Instead, remember what you were before Christ. Remember that your sin helped crucify Christ. Remember the damage and destruction of your sin. Therefore, or excuse me, there must be a clean break between the life of an unbeliever that is dead in their sin and the believer that is alive in Christ. So again, we ask the question, do we yield our attitudes towards sin And do we yield our attitude towards our time and the way that we spend our time? Verse 4 picks up, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Verse four highlights the chasm that separates the believer and the unbeliever. Once someone has renewed their mind by aligning with Christ, they no longer make sense to those that are still living their former lifestyle. The unsaved cannot understand the radical change that has happened in their friends. They cannot understand the differences in behavior and attitude. And many times the life of a Christian begins to convict someone who is not ready for the conviction, and so that causes division. This is part of the cost of becoming a follower of Christ. Those that were our friends and our family in a very real and very literal sense, can and often will become our enemies. And this is where persecution can become very real very quick. Notice here the phrase, speaking evil of you. These were people that cared about us. Now they are literally heaping abuse upon us. Are you maybe dealing with this type of persecution right now in your own family or your own circle of friends? This is something that we need to give to God. We need to yield this to God. This persecution can actually provide us with opportunities. We need to remember that what our friends and family members need is what God has given us. Our encounters with them are important to them and maybe even more so than to us because we will have opportunities to share the gospel with them. And Peter reminds us that everyone is going to give an account of their lives. This will be very different for the believer than for the unbeliever. Believers are destined for the judgment seat of Christ while, be- while unbelievers are destined for the great white throne of judgment. We're going to dissect that just a little bit here. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment seat is only for believers. We call it the Bema seat, and it is focused on our inheritance, not on our salvation. The great white throne judgment will take place a thousand years later and it will condemn the unsaved. It is, a f- it is focused on salvation or specifically the lack of salvation, the lack of faith. So there's two different judgments, two different very, very distinct times and events. One for the believers, one for unbelievers. Verse six is emphasizing, emphasizing this. Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have had the penalty of our sin paid on the cross. Our physical death leads to eternal life. Death does not initiate our sentence. So coming back to the main idea, verses 4 through 6 show us another area of our lives that we must be willing to yield. Our relationship with unbelievers. These relationships will bring persecution and difficulties, but they will also bring opportunity. We must be willing to seize those opportunities, even when difficult. We must live so as to give an account, knowing that each opportunity brings with it the potential of heavenly inheritance or the heartbreak of a missed opportunity. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So verse seven is a bit of a transition verse. It emphasizes that judgment is coming and it's coming quickly, linking back to verses one through six while also starting to look forward to the steps that we as believers should be taking and those steps we'll see kind of develop verse, through verses eight through 11. These next steps start with our prayer life, and incidentally, this is the next thing that we need to evaluate on whether or not we are yielding it to God. And That may sound a little strange, yielding our prayers to God, since he is the one that we are praying to. But it comes back again to the attitude surrounding our prayers. As we've already seen, we need to be living our life As if we are in the last days. As if there is a limited amount of time remaining before Jesus returns. The end times started when Jesus ascended to heaven. That event began the clock for when he would return. Peter has already stressed the urgency that we should live by and now he is placing emphasis on how we should pray. Notice the phrase he uses. He says, be serious and watchful. We should be paying attention to what is going on. We should be intentional about what we pray for and how we pray. We should take biblical warnings seriously and understand that in order to, excuse me, to fulfill God's will, we must be in communication with him through prayer. We should be clear-minded and self-controlled as we approach God in prayer. 1 Peter 5.8, he tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks among you or about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be clear-minded and watchful. Our prayers, especially those in the midst of persecution, should be clear-minded and focused communication. If our prayer life is confused, it is because our mind is confused. One way to begin to bring clarity is to understand and adopt a kingdom perspective. Going back to what we discussed just a couple minutes ago, our time here on earth as believers is working toward our inheritance in God's kingdom. We can think of this time as boot camp, the time we have right now here on earth. We can think of it as boot camp for The future kingdom. Our roles and our responsibilities in the coming kingdom are going to be defined by what we do here and what we do now. Let me say that again. Our roles and our responsibilities in the coming kingdom are going to be defined by what we are doing here and now. This should hopefully get us thinking. When we come to terms with that idea, that perspective, our perspective should completely shift. When we pray, your kingdom come, we better understand what it is we're actually praying for. See, if you aren't about your father's business, you better not be praying that his kingdom come. Otherwise, you're going to be missing out on some things. And again, we're not talking about salvation. If you're a believer, you're part of the kingdom. But if we're squandering our time here, if we're not for fulfilling our calling here, we're missing out on the kingdom promises, the kingdom inheritance that God has for us then. So if we have this correct kingdom perspective, our prayer life is going to be laser focused. If our thinking and prayer are correct, then our life should reflect that. Chapter Verse 8, he says, Peter goes on, he says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies." that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, if we are close to the return of Jesus, we should be about our Father's business. Here, Peter is placing significant emphasis on loving one another. We did an entire series where we focused on this just a couple months ago. And there are three important phrases that we see in verse 8. Above all things, this places the greatest importance on love. Fervent love. And this form of love can be ca- compared to an athlete perfecting their skills. See, love is not an emotional feeling, but a dedication of will. It is a choice, and this choice includes treating others the way that God treats us. Because we are flawed humans, we will never meet God's standard. But through being devoted to him and others and living in the spirit, we can demonstrate godly love to one another. And then lastly, that phrase, one another. And we spent a whole Sunday talking just about that phrase. But first and foremost, this type of love is to be given to other believers. As we've seen with many of the other letters, this is an emphasis on how we as the body of Christ are interacting with each other. There are differences between how we love and interact with believers and non-believers. There is a clear priority given all throughout the New Testament that we are to take care of each other before taking care of the world. David Guzik is somewhat playful with uh, the quote that I'm going to read when he says this. He says, if these are the last days then it is important for us to love those we are going to spend eternity with. There's people in this room that you're not going to get away from. So learn to love them now, and don't be forced to love them later. Peter goes on in verse 8 to quote Proverbs 10, verse 12. Both the proverb and this verse here in 1 Peter they typically get misquoted and misapplied in a number of different ways. So mainly, they're um, being applied to relationships outside of the church. And I'm I'm speaking specifically of the phrase that love covers a multitude of sins. We are to love everybody with a Christ-like love, but how this is applied can look different in these different contexts. Peter is not saying that love condones sin. And this is often what people outside of the church expect. See, instead, love covers sin. We help our brothers and sisters in Christ through their sin. We don't spread it through rumors. Even well-meaning prayers, and some of you have been in prayers where that happens, right? Where someone starts praying for somebody else, and they start revealing all of the issues that that person's going through in a gossipy sort of way, but it's under the the guise of prayer, so they're holy and they're, they're caring about them. No, they just really wanted to get that rumor out there, and they just really wanted to get the gossip going. So don't spread it through rumors and gossip. But we work through sin with one another. Believers should be bearing and sharing each other's burdens. Galatians 6 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted and then James 5 19 says brethren if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins verses 9 through 11 then are the application of loving one another verse 9 be hospitable to one another without grumbling Because people are difficult. Christians can be really, really whiny. We get on each other's nerves. And this is why Peter includes the phrase without grumbling. Because he knows that we want to grumble. Being hospitable, even if it comes natural or is one of your spiritual gifts, can become costly, burdensome and irritating but we are supposed to do it without grumbling and the only way this works is by keeping the right perspective and the right attitude an attitude of love in the same way that God loves us an interesting side note here is that in his letters to Timothy and to Titus Paul emphasizes hospitality as one of the qualifications of ministry and to which I say then This is why ministry is hard because sometimes we don't want to be hospitable even with one another. In verse 10, Peter again uses the phrase one another reminding us that our spiritual gifts are primarily for the edification of one another, for the church. These are gifts that are primarily focused on the unbeliever, but for the most part, our spiritual gifts, or excuse me, there are gifts that are primarily focused on the unbeliever But for the most part, our spiritual gifts are tools for building up and equipping the saints in order to support one another in our interactions with the unbelieving world. We're to build each other up here and present with one another so then we can go out there and minister to them the way that we are supposed to as well. Christian love, the love that is mentioned in verse 8, must result in serving one another, We are all given at least one spiritual gift, something that is not a natural talent, but that manifests itself through the work of the Holy Spirit. These spiritual gifts must bring God glory through the building up of his church. Not using your gifts in this manner is defrauding the body of Christ. When we are not in fellowship with others and are not serving others, We are literally taking away blessings from others that they should be receiving from us. Not only are we robbing others of blessings, but we are robbing them of God's grace. His grace manifests itself to his church as we exercise our spiritual gifts. His grace is manifold, meaning it is varied because it is manifested in many different ways through many different people demonstrating many different gifts. God's grace is very diverse. Paul stresses the importance of being good stewards with what God has given us, especially in the context of our giftings and of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 15 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. If we are bad stewards of God's grace, then it was given to us in vain. Instead of passing through us to others, we essentially block God's grace and are keeping it. To ourselves. The idea of stewardship is not one that we should take lightly. And this goes back to the kingdom perspective that we were talking about earlier. Our words and our actions should all be glorifying God and they should be kingdom oriented. If we aren't glorifying God or furthering the kingdom, we aren't being good stewards. We end up wasting God's grace We end up wasting our gifts. We end up wasting our relationships and our resources and our time. So, verses 8 through 11 bring with them some evaluative questions. (coughs) How are we doing yielding our relationships to God? What about our giftings? What about our time? How are we doing yielding to God? At verse 12, we start to see another transition. And the context here, it's still the same. We're still talking about suffering, glory, and Christ's return. But Peter seems to be ramping this up a bit. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached by the name of Christ, excuse me, for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. There's some historical context that we should include here. See, Peter calls the trials fiery, and this could be purely metaphorical, but there was also a very literal sense in which this could be applied. Peter was writing his letters around the time when Nero was beginning to persecute the church. Up until this point, persecution had primarily been coming from Jewish leadership, but now the Roman government was starting to get involved, and Nero was extremely wicked, Excuse me. Some Christians were covered in pitch and used as living torches. So they were covered in pitch and then lit on fire. And they would light the imperial gardens at night with their burning bodies. Peter could have possibly been alluding to this practice, thinking that it could start to spread beyond the palace into the greater stretch of the Roman Empire. But either way, the persecution was intensifying, and Peter was reminding the believers that they shouldn't be surprised by this. It be a very difficult letter to receive in the context of knowing that believers were being literally burned at the stake It's not something that we here have to deal with. But we can still put it in our context. The the same is still true for us today. Persecution should not be considered a strange thing. In America, sometimes it is a strange thing. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we haven't really been persecuted for our faith. At least not to the extent of believers other places. But if Satan is leaving you alone you should start asking yourself the question, why? <clears throat> it's important to note that not all of the difficulties of life are necessarily fiery trials. There are some difficulties that are simply part of human life, and almost everybody is going to experience them. We are all going to get old. We're all going to ha- see our bodies kind of start to fail some of us are closer to that process than others, but we understand that. That's just a natural part of human nature because of the sin nature. And so there is a, a, an entropy that's going to impact all of us. That isn't necessarily a fiery trial. There are some difficulties that we bring about ourselves because of disobedience and sin. Peter mentioned those in 1 Peter 2 and uh, three in, in those chapters that we didn't cover, he talks about our own sin and our own consequences. And a lot of us want to sometimes run into those ideas where we've done something stupid, we've done something sinful, and then we treat it as a fiery trial that's been brought about. We have to take accountability and responsibility for that and understand that that is not a fiery trial if you bring it on yourself. The fiery trial that he's mentioning here in in verse 12 comes because we are faithful to God and we stand up for that which is right. It is because we bear the name of Christ that the lost world attacks us. So we have to be very clear when we're talking about fiery trials not to miscategorize what we're going through. An interesting thing to consider, though, is that there was a time when Peter tried to convince Jesus to avoid the suffering of the cross. And now, here in his letter, we see him kind of expecting the exact opposite. Peter is telling us that we should anticipate these fiery trials and that we shouldn't run from them, but we should embrace them. The exact opposite of what he told Christ. If the world hates you, and these are the words of Jesus in John, you know that, I, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. We suffer in fellowship with Jesus, and this is to be expected. Not only should we expect it, but we should be honored to do it, and we should find joy when it happens." Sharing in the suffering with Christ produces several benefits. Joy with Christ. Fellowship with him. Philippians 3:10 tells us. Being glorified with him, Romans 8:17 says, and reigning with him, 2 Timothy 2:12. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, "My brethren, count it all joy" When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, suffering for the name of Jesus is supposed to be a blessing. It reveals that we are actually following Christ. Our suffering is because we identify with him. This is a privilege and not a penalty. So as we discussed earlier, the world hates Jesus. We cannot be loved by the world and remain true to Jesus. We cannot and should not expect the approval of those that reject Christ. Their disapproval of us should be worn like a badge of honor. In verses 15 and 16 here, Peter issues us a bit of a warning. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. When we're going through a trial or our suffering, we need to make sure that it's not because of our own behaviors and actions. And if it is, we must repent and then bear those consequences. However, if we find ourselves going through something and it isn't because of our own sin and it isn't just part of life, then we should count our suffering as joy and we should not be ashamed of it. This must have been interesting for Peter to write. See, I think back to the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, excuse me, and the persecution that started there. Peter fled. He was ashamed. He was scared. He denied Christ. And again, as many of us have said many times, this is why we love Peter. He's real, he's honest. And we can see such a change in his approach and the way that he lived his life. And we can be hopeful that the change that we saw in him or see in him, we can experience ourselves as we continue to grow closer to Christ. There was a little hope, right? I threw it in there. Hopefully you're getting hope out of all of this and not just right there. But Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed of us. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that the Father is not ashamed to be called our God. How could we be ashamed to share in his suffering? He has every reason to be ashamed of us and the things that we do, but he's not. We should not be ashamed when we have to suffer on his behalf. Paul's words, these are ones that most of us know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So before we move off of these verses, it's important quickly to look back at the list of sinful actions Notice that Peter lumps a gossip or a busybody into the same category as a murderer and a thief. (coughs) See, I mentioned it earlier, and let's just reemphasize it here. There is no place for gossip within the life of a believer. More damage is caused by gossip than by a murderer or a thief. So do you yield your persecution and your suffering to God? And this is an interesting question if we go back to our Robin Hood illustration. When little John was potentially drowning, he was flailing his arms and his legs. He was distracted. He was unfocused and he was confused. He was unable to see the cause of his suffering or the solution to his suffering. It was only when he was willing to yield that these things began to make sense. And it's the same for us. When we are dealing with persecution or we are suffering, if we haven't yielded those things to God, we are seeking solutions in the wrong place. Maybe we are missing, with, missing what the real problem is, and it's only through surrendering to Christ that we can begin to gain understanding or to be okay without understanding. And that part's key. Because sometimes we're going to suffer, sometimes we're going to be dealing with something, and we are not going to be given an explanation as to why. And we have to be okay with that. And that is surrendering and yielding to Christ. So is this an area of your life that you have been yielding to Jesus? Verse 17, we're almost done here. the father. They are refining processes that teach discipline and purify our lives. Hebrews 12 7 says if you endure chastening God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom a father does not chasten. God disciplines us toward obedience. When we go through trials or tribulations of any sort It is important for us to remember that there is never any punishment associated with our persecution. God is not punishing his children. He is purifying us. God is not punishing his children. He's purifying us. For the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all on the cross. Where Jesus endured all the punishment the Christian could ever face from God. I said this on Wednesday night, I'll say it again. When God looks at us as a believer, he sees Jesus. And that is an amazing truth. Peter concludes this chapter with a final word of encouragement we should commit ourselves to our faithful Creator. And Wiersbe says this in relation to, again, this kingdom perspective we've been talking about. If we really have hope and believe that Jesus is coming again, then we will obey his word and start laying up treasures and glory in heaven. Unsaved people have a present that is controlled by their past, but Christians have a present that is controlled by their future. In our very serving, we are committing ourselves to God and making investments for the future. See, for the believer, what we endure in this life is as bad as it is ever going to get. Think about that. What you're dealing with here on earth, this is as bad as it will ever be for you. For the unbeliever, though, right here, right now is as good as it's ever going to get. We need to have this perspective. We need to understand. And we need to yield. So the question again, the overarching question, do you yield? I hope this line of thought stayed with you as we went through 1 Peter chapter 4. For most of us in the room, the question of submission is one of lifestyle. The question's... That I asked are relatable. We need to examine our attitude, our behaviors, our time, our relationships, our giftings, etc. But there may be some in this room that today the question regarding surrender is even more basic than that. It isn't about lifestyle, it's simply about life. See, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, You can't surrender your lifestyle to him. You must first surrender your life to him. And the Bible tells us that in order to be saved from our sins and from death and the punishment of sin, we must believe the gospel and confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The gospel is a simple and clear message. Let me leave you with a couple verses. It says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's a simple message. Jesus paid the price for all sin by dying on the cross. He defeated sin and death by being raised again on the third day. And he offers eternal life to all who believe in him. So for the rest of us, what are we doing? We're here in 2022. Time seems short. Jesus is either returning or he's going to be calling us home. And are we living with a kingdom perspective? Do you yield every aspect of your life to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith? Or are you holding something back, thinking that you can do it better on your own? Whatever you're holding on to, surrender it to Jesus today. Yield today. We're going to be moving into communion here in just a minute. And as we do, we'll have people up here for prayer as well. And each one of us has the ability to examine our hearts if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, the Bible tells us that today is the day of your salvation. Today you can surrender. Today you can yield. I would love to speak with you or any of the people that are up here as we move forward. You can come up to them and they will share with you and pray with you if you're ready to surrender your life. For others of us, if it is about lifestyle, We've already surrendered our life to Christ, but maybe there's elements of our lifestyle that we have not yielded to him. Well, today can be the day of yielding those things as well. Examine your hearts before we take the elements. If you don't have those elements, the ushers can bring them to you. We're gonna stand, and I'm gonna ask the the band to come forward as I pray, and we're gonna move into a time of reflection. Reflect on your hearts. Examine those areas that have not been yielded to Christ and yield them today.